Reflections on the Bible Creation, Fall, and Sacrifice by Gil Bailey Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 3 What's more interesting in terms of the kind of uh, detective work that I'm trying to perform here is that Jeremiah says at the beginning of that passage, how dare you say I am not defiled, I have not run after the balls. In other words, he's delivering this message to people who thought when they, when they engaged in those rituals, who thought they were being faithful Yahwists. And that's where the real shocker comes in. Because that means that these cults were not Canaanite cults. They, were, they may have been perfectly modeled on the Canaanite model, but they were, they were cults that were officially designated to the biblical God. And that's why Jeremiah is so worked up over them. That shocks us. But when we read the story of Abraham, we're not shocked because we're so familiar with it. The biblical God says, sacrifice your son. Now, if that was totally absurd, Abraham wouldn't have believed it. So the next passage in Jeremiah is from Jeremiah 19. Yahweh speaking. He says, They have abandoned me. They have filled this place with the blood of the innocent. They have built high places for Baal to burn their sons there, which I had never ordered or decreed, which had never entered my thoughts. So the days are coming, it is Yahweh who speaks, when people will no longer call this place Topeth or the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, but the Valley of Slaughter. And that, I think, is such a profound biblical prophecy because it, it tells us what biblical the biblical journey is all about in a way it tells us what Western history is all about. We will always be looking back and recognizing what we thought as uh, we, we thought of as something having to do with upholding this tradition was in fact an abomination. We thought it was the Valley of Ben-Hinnom. It was actually the Valley of Slaughter. We thought it was the, the noble cause of the Crusades. It was actually the Valley of Slaughter. We thought it was the Inquisition. It was the Valley of Slaughter. We thought it was this and that and the other. It was the, Not because this is a perverse tradition, but because we are the tradition that looks back with contrition on what we have done in the light of what the paraclete has just taught us about the truth. And in that light, we look back on our past and we see what it was. And, and I think all of that is in, implicit in Jeremiah, saying the day will come when you won't call this the Valley of Topeth anymore. You'll see it for what it was. Because, to use a New Testament term, the paraclete will have brought you to that place where you will be able to see what happened there. What I want to emphasize in this passage again is Jeremiah, if you will, pounding the table and saying... Using speaking as Yahweh, they have built pl high places to burn their sons there, which I never ordered or decreed, and which has never entered my mind. And I think Jeremiah's pounding the table because there are people who think, in fact, Yahweh decreed it. And it's that he's trying to dispel. The idea that you could possibly do that in the name of Yahweh is what has Jeremiah so exercised. One last biblical thing and it's from Micah it's the famous passage from Micah and it's the whole sweep of the biblical uh, anthropology it's really extraordinary in a way in, this, in the way that second Isaiah is extraordinary and Micah is mocking the sacrificial logic and doing what the great prophets always did and that is deconstructing the sacrificial mandate and introducing uh, prayer and faith and justice and so on. So Micah says, to mo mocking the, uh, the, the logic, Micah speaks as a typical uh, Israelite of his time. And he says, 
With what gift shall I come into Yahweh's presence and bow down before God on high? Shall I come with holocaust, with calves one year old? Will he be pleased with rams by the thousand? By the way, he, he begins to tick off this little litany of sacrificial options, but they become more and more wholesale, greater and greater sacrificial. In other words, you would, I would say this could always correspond to an increasing social crisis. We resort to more and more uh, uh, powerful sacrificial formulas as the social crisis deepens. So I would say this is a, it's a piece of biblical anthropology in the sense that it sort of goes down and looks at the various options as the crisis deepens. Shall I come with holocaust? With calves one year old? Will he be pleased with rams by the thousand? With libation of oil in torrents? Must I give my firstborn for what I have done wrong, the fruit of my body for my own sin? It's explicit human sacrifice, child sacrifice reference. So tremendous sweep. In other words, he's going, it's going in the opposite direction of Abraham. It's going from Holocaust, animal sacrifices, as the crisis deepens, to forms of human sacrifice. And then the next line is, What is good has been explained to you, O man. This is what Yahweh asks of you, only this, to act justly, to love tenderly, and to walk humbly with your God. It's absolutely breathtaking the way it encompasses that ancient sacrificial anthropology and brings us all the way into, uh, into a, a kind of Pauline uh, spirituality. I want to tell you a little story that is apropos of this, in my mind at least, and that is, and it was very touching for me. Yesterday, I was walking with my daughter Anya, and we were going over uh, to the store over here, and we, we walked through a field, and I, I said to her, let's walk through this field, because you never know, these fields, they've been getting filled up with buildings and things lately, you know, and we better take advantage of walking through a field as much as we can, so someday we may come over here, and this is not going to be a field anymore. And so that set her upon a series of reflections about things. <laughs> She's 11. And so she said, you know, uh, we, I, I don't like these big stores, you know. It'd probably be a big store come in here and take up this field. I don't like these big stores. I, I like little shops, really. I enjoy going into little shops, but not big stores. So she said, our town probably needs about three shops. I, I would say three shops and then, and then houses and, uh, and an orphanage. And there was... <laughs> And there was this slight pause, and I was about to ask about that last thing. And without, without blinking, looking straight ahead, she said, not for putting kids in, but for taking them out. <laughs> and I thought, there you have it. There you. A, I mean, this is, I mean, A, it's biblical in that, we are to, we are to take. One of the first things the prophets say is that we must take care of widows and orphans. And B, it's Abrahamic. In the sense that if we're children of Abraham, we must always be redeeming the lost ones, the victims. And so I was in a mind to hear what my daughter was teaching me yesterday. <laughs> I would never have put, I would have said, well, okay, a three shot. I would maybe have said maybe a church, you know. <laughs> she said, no, an orphanage. <laughs> Not for putting them in, but for taking them out. It's now time to go to Abraham, but I'm going to go to something right before Abraham. Because I think to understand Abraham as the father of our faith, we have to understand not only what he did and what he represents, but we also have to understand the alternative 
to Abraham as it's presented in the book of Genesis. And I think the alternative to Abraham is presented in the story of the Tower of Babel. And that is a story that begins by saying everybody in the world spoke the same language and had the same vocabulary. And by the way, now this is, these are the people who, are going, who, who the, the Bible is going to judge as, as fallen and accursed in some way. So I think it's very interesting, even before you get into the story, that there is, in the biblical tradition, a suspicion about unanimity. Here is a people that speak the same language and use the same vocabulary. That, that isn't just uh, linguistic. That means they're thinking the same thoughts. They're talking the same talk. They all think the same way. There is a kind of dull uniformity to this crowd. And the Bible has great reservations about that. We have to watch out when that's the case. What happens when that's the case? I have a friend who defined, who works at the, uh, the uh, Center for International Security and Arms Control at Stanford, who defines a viable democracy as a democracy in which the loyal opposition has a respected place. And you see, that's a world in which there isn't that unanimity because you have to watch out for those, those worlds. Un unanimity, as it's created in the ordinary course of things, is something that the Bible, at least in this story and others, is wary of. So here's the, the people of the Tower of uh, Babel. They move into the land of Shinar. They settle there. They say, oh, come, let's build, us, uh, build ourselves a town and a tower that will reach to heaven so that we will not be scattered. And they fortify themselves. They hunker down. They circle the wagons. They build a fortress, a static place. They are not going anywhere, thank you. They have found what they want and they are going to stay there. So this would be a, the image of, the, of, of how it can go wrong. The fortress church, the bastion church, the Zionist citadel, the, uh, the smug evangelical uh, position and so on and so forth. No, thank you. We're staying right here. We have everything we need. And we, I think we should not get too caught up in the, in the language, which is a little convoluted here, and simply notice what happens. What happens is that their language becomes confused. They cease to understand each other, and lo and behold, they are scattered. So the very thing they were trying to avoid, namely being scattered, happens to them willy-nilly. And I would say a few things about this story. The first is that what's important, if we see it in light of what comes immediately afterward, namely the call of Abraham, what this story is about is people who are not going on a journey. And they speak one language, and they're not interested in inter entertaining any other options. They're going to stay with that one. As a result, I would say this, this is how I would interpret, I would interpret the, the confusion of tongues in, in the Babel story in two ways. Number one, in a way that corresponds, I must say, to things that are happening in, in our world today and once again in, the, in literary and philosophical deconstruction, it is that when you, when you don't go on a journey, you don't really have anything to talk about. And so you end up talking more and more about less and less. So people that are not on a journey don't have anything to talk about. They, but, but the impulse to talk is greater than ever. And so they talk more and more about less and less. And pretty soon they start talking about talking. <laughs> and that's what's happened in the, in the field of literary studies and linguistics and, and so on. They start talking about the problematics of communication and representation and, uh, and so on and so forth. And I think that's a sure sign that 
there's no real journey taking place. The other echo of this story is in the New Testament. And that is when Jesus in the New Testament, particularly, this happens all over the New Testament, but particularly in John, when Jesus gives a, a powerful sermon, he walks away, everybody's arguing. He doesn't unify people with these sermons. He causes a great hubbub. What's he talking about? Is he with us or against us? Is he really a traditionalist or is he some radical? Is he, is he affirming what Moses did or is he going in another direction totally? All of this hubbub. This means a journey. That means there's a journey going on. That people are being dragged on a journey and now they have something to talk about. So the people in, in, described in the Tower of Babel story are people who steadfastly are not going to go on a journey. The result is that they speak strange languages, they can't communicate with each other, and they're scattered uh, over the face of the earth. What's the obvious biblical typology to that? It is the story of Pentecost. It's people who are ready for a journey, who begin to speak in many languages, but understand, a, a, but, but have a, a coherent understanding of them, and who are scattered to the ends of the earth. The difference is one's on a journey and one's not. And so the next, the story of Abraham picks up right there. Abraham could very well have been, found himself ensconced in precisely that kind of closed system. Now, what, what I want to now call attention to is uh, God's purpose. <laughs> I know you came here to hear <laughs> Gil Bailey tell you about God's purpose, but we have to, there's a, kind of, there's a certain humor, really, about this Abraham story. If you see it in light of Abraham's ultimate move, which happens with Isaac on Mount Moriah, God says, okay, what are the chances of me getting people to move in my direction? That is to say, away from sacrifice. And he looks over the face of the earth and he says, they're not good. They're not good. He could do that in 1994 or in the middle of the Bronze Age. They're not terribly good. Under what conditions might it happen? Well, then we have to see what, what God does with Abraham. First, he call, first of all, he lets him get to be 75. <laughs> he, do, he doesn't call some young kid out, right? Let's get somebody 75. And let's find somebody 75 who is childless. who obviously at 75 has given up hope of ever having a child. And then let's call him out of his culture. This is never, the chances of this happening if somebody stays inside their culture is nil. It won't happen. The cultural reinforcements that affirm the sacrificial gestures are so powerful that if you try to do it from within, it won't happen. This is, this is the divine logic. So we must find the old man who has given up hope of having a child, but who in the ancient world, having a son to carry your, your, your name and your life on was the form of uh, immortality in the ancient world. It's a tremendously profound thing. So to find the old one who has given up hope of having a son but who has no son, call him out of the culture. Abraham, come out. Leave your country, your family, and your father's house and go toward the land that I will show you. Don't give him a destination. Don't let him know where this thing's going. See, keep it open-ended. It's a journey. And then say to Abraham, 
you're going to have a child. Why say that? Because it awakens once again that great deep longing within him for a son. So you take this old man, bring him out of his culture, and turn his whole life into one huge, chronic, heartbreaking longing for a son. Because you have to have, it's going to take somebody with that kind of profile in order to do what Yahweh is trying to get done. And so, Abraham is, Abraham is told that he is going to have a son. He And Yahweh is faithful. Years pass. Now Abraham's a hundred. Okay? He's a hundred. This is a way of saying older than the world. No son. Well, obviously Yahweh wants him to have a son, so he does what we all humans do. He takes matters into his own hands. He and Sarah, they say, well... There's your, the, the, the slave woman, Hagar. You can have a son by Hagar. So he has a son by Hagar, Ishmael. And then we have the whole problem of Ishmael as the one who's, and Hagar is treated, treated t- terribly by, by uh, Sarah and Abraham and Ishmael is sent away and so on. We, there is a drama in there that has, that, we could go back and investigate. The important part in terms of what Abraham really has to do is this. Ishmael was the son of his slave woman. If Abraham had taken Ishmael to Mount Moriah, he would have sacrificed him. So why did Ishmael not do exactly for that reason? Now, am I talking as a biblical scholar? No, I'm not one. Am I, is this anthropology? No. Is this spirituality? No. I don't know what it is. This is some other strange way of talking. But think about it. Think about it. If he had taken Ishmael to Mount Moriah, he would have sacrificed him. It can't. It won't do. So Isaac is born. Abraham's whole life now is focused on his son Isaac. And Yahweh says... Take your son, and notice this. When God calls to Abraham, he says, Abraham, Abraham, take your son. And now he doesn't want, in case the old man getting a little senile, he doesn't want him to forget what's on on the line. So he says, take your son, Abraham, your only son, remember, the one whom you love, got it? (laughs) So everything's called up. And go to the, to the land of Moriah and there offer him as a burnt offering on the mountain I will point out to you. Sacrifice him and give him to me. The legend has it, of course, that Mount Moriah is the mountain on which the temple of Jerusalem was later built. Don't forget that and don't let me forget that because I want to come back to that in the next couple of weeks and talk about the linkage between this story and the contest between the temple and Jesus in the New Testament. So, now, this is a little bit like the the Exodus thing which says the child should be with his mother for seven days and then on the eighth you, you... sacrifice it well here it's drawn out so rising early next day abraham saddled his ass and took him took with him two of his servants and his son isaac chopped wood for the burnt offering uh, to the place where god had pointed out to him on the third day they journey for three days abraham looks up and sees the place in the distance he tells his servants stay here with the donkey the boy and i will go there we will worship and come back Abram took the wood for the burnt offering and loaded it on Isaac and carried in his hands the fire and the knife. So they walk up, and again the drama is building. Isaac says to his father, we, we have the fire and the knife and the fuel for the fire and so on. Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham says, my son God himself will provide 
the lamb for the burnt offering. Now, this is the God. God he's talking about is the God who gave him a son in his ancient, ancient old age against all expectation. It's the God whom Abraham has spent his life learning to trust. And now he says God will provide. They go up. He straps. Now, let's, first, let's just pause here for a second. When God said to Abraham, sacrifice your only son, and Abraham gets up the next morning and heads for the mountain, would he have done that if it was absolutely impossible for the God of Israel to demand such a thing? You know, Jeremiah said, for example, uh, he never ordered such a thing or decreed it. It never entered his thoughts. What if Abraham had read that? You see what I'm saying? We have to put this story in the context of a world in which child sacrifice was a was the norm. Not that it happened every day, but that at critical moments, that was the last sacrificial uh, resource. That was the last of the uh, of the sacrificial options that was resorted to in in times of real crisis. And so it's a given. And so Abraham is walking up there not thinking, of, not thinking, where in the hell did Yahweh get such an idea? He's, he's, he's accepted it as, as the way things always have been. Except he has three days to think about it. He has his son he's been waiting a lifetime on to talk to as they go up and so on. And he gets there, he ties his son to the altar, he raises his knife above him. The angel of Yahweh called to him from heaven. And it's interesting that it is an angel. It's a mediated message. And so, you know, Abraham's, the whole business of having a child began when Abraham was visited by three strangers who became angelic figures. So there's mediation going on. I don't want to be distracted by it, but the angel said, do not raise your hand against the boy. Do not harm him, for now I know you fear God. You have not refused your son, your only son. And I'll come back to that. There's no, the angel says nothing about substitution at all. Abraham looks up and sees a ram caught in the thicket, and he offers the ram in place of Isaac. And he called the place Yahweh Provides. Now, this, this story originates at a time when child sacrifice was the norm. But it's being retold and interpreted at a time when child sacrifice was an abomination. And so I say we have to, we have to perform a, a kind of uh, deconstruction on the text a little bit to appreciate its significance. The angel of Yahweh called to Abraham a second time, I swear by my own self it is Yahweh who speaks, because you have done this, because you have not refused your only son, I will shower blessings on you, and so on. Abraham has been recognized as the obedient one, and properly so. But it's important for us to, you know, keeping faith and breaking ground is what we're trying to do here, which means there are certain things that have to be deconstructed. If Abraham is obedient, what we must insist upon that is that he is obedient because of what he did, not because of what he almost did and didn't. His obedience consists in what he did. Namely, he renounced human sacrifice and moved toward or introduced animal substitution, which was a sacrificial form at the time, which was morally uh, uh, tolerable and religiously effective. And that's what he did. Now, the reason we call him father of of our faith is because he did it in obedience to the God whom he and everybody else thought was requiring them to murder their children. In other words, he didn't get there and say, 
I'm walking away from this. This is not the God I want to worship. Da 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 da. He said, "You know what? The God who is inspiring me to lay this knife down is the very God that my ancestors thought was inspiring them to take it up." That's why he is the father of faith because the continuity between those two. He said, "No. We, this move I am making is not my move. It is inspired by the God that I have been worshiping all my life." And that that's really the act of faith. To wrap up, I would like to go to the New Testament for a minute and then into our own time. The passage that I quote so often in the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus is speaking to the Jews who believed in him. And he says, if you make my word your home, my logos your home, you would indeed be my disciples and you would learn the truth and the truth would set you free. And they say, wait a minute, we're free already because we're children of Abraham. And Jesus says, I know you are descended from Abraham. You see, what does it mean to be a child of Abraham? Are we talking genealogy here? I know you're descended from Abraham, but in spite of that, you want to kill me. Now, is it coincidental that they're talking about Abraham? Are they just talking? Does, is Abraham just a, a metaphor for Jewishness? I don't think so. What does Abraham represent? Abraham represents the one who moves away from violent sacrifice, from the whole scapegoating scenario and the sacrificial rituals that, uh, that uh, perpetuate it and institutionalize it and so if he says I know you're descended from Abraham but in spite of that you want to kill me which means you are not children of Abraham in a spiritual sense you are not doing what Abraham did Abraham what Abraham did you think oh Abraham chose not to sacrifice Isaac and sacrificed a ram instead you, in your time, are faced with a situation like that. I'm standing in front of you, and now you want to kill me. That means that you are not children of Abraham. So what does it mean to be a child of Abraham? It means to carry on that great biblical move, which is to move away from sacrifice, but to do it always as an act of fidelity to the God whom we thought was demanding sacrifice. That's what makes Abraham's act an act of faith, the, the quintessential, paradigmatic act of faith. I want to come to a conclusion by thinking for a minute about a contemporary event. Abraham was the great patriarch, the first primary patriarch. A week ago, a week and a half ago, a man named Baruch Goldstein went to the tomb of the patriarchs in Hebron with an automatic weapon and killed 40 or so Muslim worshipers. My friend Bob Harrington Kelly the other day made the remark to me, Bob wrote this seminal book on Paul. He said, Paul was Baruch Goldstein on his way to the tomb of the patriarchs when he had his conversion. That's what the road to Damascus is. You see, Paul was on his way to Damascus to crush the infidel when he had his great conversion. And I thought to myself later, yes, and Paul's conversion was Abrahamic. You see, it was Abrahamic. 
because it was doing what Abraham did. It was suddenly realizing that this is not what God wants. But it was still the God that he had always served. He didn't change gods all of a sudden. That's why it's Abrahamic. He realized that, as Paul said, sin took advantage of the law or sin took advantage of the Torah and made me a murderer. In the same way that Christians could say sin took advantage of the, of the, the you know, the Crusades or the Inquisition or the whatever other scandal, you know. So, there's plenty of sacrificial events going on in our world. And I think Paul and Abraham, Abraham and Paul, represent to us the direction the Bible is trying to take us and the rest of the world. It's not coincidental that the tomb of the patriarchs is a shrine for Muslims as well as Jews and to some extent as Christians as well because all of us, Christians, Jews, and Muslims, regard Abraham as our great ancestor. I have this idea. We, we should convene this huge conference which would be children of Abraham. I'm sure it's been done a thousand times. But it's not, I don't know if it's been done with an understanding of what Abraham represents anthropologically. If we were to convene a conference recognizing what Abraham represents anthropologically and say, look, we're children of Abraham. You Muslims are children of Abraham. You Jews are children of Abraham. You Christians are children of Abraham. Let's sit down and talk about what does it mean to be children of Abraham. We could, a, a real discussion could, could uh, ensue, I would think. And it would come not a minute too early. The familiar biblical formulation stating that we're all children of Abraham has heretofore been, to a degree at least, an option that we could either embrace or ignore. In other words, the static bastions of conventional culture with their towers and walls remained a viable alternative to following the journey of Abraham. Today, however, the centripetal power of such cultural arrangements is breaking down, a byproduct of the biblical deconstruction of sacrificial structures. If Abraham was called out of culture so that he could hear the inspiration of the God who was calling humanity out of all of its sacrificial complicity, we are entering a period when historical circumstances are depriving us of exactly those same kind of cultural reinforcement. In an interesting article, more than interesting article, by Robert Kaplan recently entitled The Coming Anarchy, an article to which I want to return later, Kaplan writes, Traveling with Eritrean guerrillas in what according to the map was northern Ethiopia, traveling in, quote, northern Iraq with Kurdish guerrillas, and staying in a hostel in the Caucasus controlled by a local mafia, to say nothing of my experiences in West Africa, led me to develop a healthy skepticism towards maps which I began to realize create a conceptual barrier that prevents us from comprehending the political crack-up just beginning to occur worldwide. And Kaplan says later on, henceforth the map of the world will never be static. This future map, in a sense the last map, will be an ever-mutating representation of chaos. Howard Thurman told me one time, you can never be at home everywhere until you're home somewhere. But Tillich says our home, biblical people always have their home in time, not in place. That the biblical God is the God of time, not of place. And so if we're going to be at home, we just have to understand what's happening in history. Our home will be an understanding of what this journey is that we're taking. And it's, a, and it's Abrahamic. It's an Abrahamic journey. 
without doubt, as cultures and the systems of sacred violence and sacrifice that structured them break down, there will be more disorder and more violence. Inevitably, this disorder will produce a whole host of sacrificial imperatives. It will be a good time to try to be children of Abraham. Those who lived through such a tumultuous time may have plenty of opportunities to arrest the sacrificial knife in its downward path. And I feel that we will never be able to do so unless, like Abraham, we do so in obedience to the God in whose name we and our religious predecessors raised the knife in the first place. And for me, that's the great move of Abraham, that he recognized that his repudiation of the sacrificial act was inspired by the God to whom he had at one time thought it was dedicated. The biblical spirit's absolutely right, I think, when it says everything begins with Abraham. And we have to say, what did Abraham do? And here's where you get a little complication. The biblical tradition only talks about what he didn't do. Namely, what he almost did. His faith had to do with willingness to sacrifice his son. But I don't think that's what his faith had to do with. I think his faith had to do with realizing that deciding not to was an act of fidelity to the God that everybody else thought was demanding that he do so. That's real faith. And the faith has to do not with his willingness to sacrifice his son. That isn't faith. To interpret it that way is to interpret it sacrificially. It's Nietzschean to say that Abraham is the father of faith because he was willing to sacrifice his son is to say that he was obedient because of what he didn't do. And it's also to set up this Nietzschean idea that even the, you just have to swallow hard and do it. And that's terrible. You know, There are plenty of people in the world doing that already. For us moderns, when we get to this point and we suddenly, the scales fall from our eyes and we say, hey, those aren't gooks. Those are Vietnamese peasants. You know, when that happens, we say this whole tradition is hogwash. When in fact it was the tradition that caused the scales to fall. So that we, we tend to appropriate to ourselves this moral position we've just arrived at and repudiate the tradition that actually awakened it in us. And Abraham didn't do that. That's why I say the Bible it provides us with the tools and the inspiration to deconstruct certain biblical texts in which the biblical text interprets itself in a convoluted and sacrificial way. But, there, but there's a spirit in the biblical text as a whole and certain aspects of it in particular that, that inspire us and give us the tools for deconstructing those passages which do that. And I think they're parts of the... Abraham's story are, are that. It's his faith is not faith because he was willing to do what he finally didn't do. His obedience is not obedience because of that. His, his obedience is in, in recognizing that his renunciation of the crudest form of sacrifice was fidelity to the God whom everybody else thought was demanding it. Well, why don't we start with something that was in the New York Times this morning. Peter Steinfels writes a column frequently, a religion column for the Times on Saturday morning. And he had a piece in there this morning about following on the, the, the killings at Hebron that took place a few weeks ago and the religious response to it. Uh, and so on, interface response really, and uh, he speaks of that and then he enlarges it to the problem, whole problem of uh, religious violence in history and in the world today and how the various religious traditions are trying to uh, cope with it. And I, I was particularly interested, he, he said, uh, you know, in the West some time ago we split religion off from 
secular politics in large part because we didn't like the mixture. We didn't like what was happening when they got mixed. Uh, too much violence happened when they got mixed. So the separation of church and state in the West is really part and parcel of, some people thought that separation of church and state was a, was a, a, a falling away. Some people wanted to do it for, clearly because they wanted to put religion at arm's length. They didn't like it. They wanted to dis dispense with it, and the, best, the first step in dispensing with it was to put it on the reservation. On the other hand, at a deeper level, the separation of church and state really is, is another stage in the biblical revelation. It's part and parcel of the West's uh, attempt, uh, almost in spite of itself, uh, to ex extend the biblical revelation to, to discover forms of uh, religion and worship and prayer and so on that are not entangled with sacred violence. Uh, so anyway, Steinfeld mentions that and then he says the modern world has tried to get away from religious violence or what Gerard calls sacred violence either by entertaining the idea of extinguishing religion altogether uh, or by removing from the religious tradition, from the traditional memory, those aspects of the tradition which were so explicitly violent and offensive to the modern sensibility. And Steinfeld points out that neither of these, of course, have worked. Uh, when you eliminate religion, you get ideologies, ethnicities, nationalisms, and so on, that are just as vicious and just as uh, bloody and just as religiously so, uh, that, so that the quote-unquote religious element is not eliminated just because you have, you have moved into a secular set of terms. And then also the, idea, the, the attempt to, uh, to extirpate the tradition and, and, uh, and retain only those aspects that are, that are flattering to modern sensibilities and so on has not worked either. And so here's what Steinfeld says towards the end of his little piece. He says, neither tactic has succeeded. The remedy for religion's murderous toxins, it seems, must come from deep within each faith. Every world religion has its own antibodies to cruelty and fanaticism, although whether in the same proportions is an open question. And um, of course, what uh, Rene argued last week and what I've tried to point out uh, based on his, his uh, writings and research is that the biblical tradition generally and the Christian tradition specifically uh, has an enormous resource when it comes to uh, antibodies designed to uh, cure us of these murderous religious toxins namely in the Christian uh, world, a, uh, a quintessential sacrificial event seen from the point of view of its victim and uh, one in which the, the myth carried in the head of the mob is, is uh, revealed as, as being false and so on. Well, we've been through that before. But our series now, which, which I've been calling Creation, Fall, and Sacrifice, is a short little series, but what I want to do is, is make a very quick survey of some of these uh, resources that uh, Steinfeld is talking about. And so last week we talked about Abraham, and this week I want to jump right into the New Testament. But as usual, I want to go back and pick up a stitch. I'll begin by saying last Sunday I gave a little talk at church on a passage from the Gospel of John and I'll tell you something about the, the, something, I, something I got into in that talk I didn't even intend to uh, applies to today but before I tell you about that I, I'll tell you what I, it was announced the week before, this is a shaggy dog story, the week before in church at the end of Mass, it was announced that I was going to give a talk next week. And I was sitting there with 
my family, and the person making the announcement said, uh, well, next week at 10 o'clock, Gil Bailey is uh, going to be talking, uh, and uh, blah, blah, blah. And my daughter, who's 11, Anya, leaned over to me and said, how embarrassing. <laughs> which is, which is, which is absolutely typical of Anya. I mean, that's just the way she is. That's her response to any of this. How embarrassing. And so I kind of picked up on it and teased around with her. Now, she had just recently been in a, in a little children's play, and she was the stage director, and she loved being the stage director because she got to sort of tell everybody where to go and wh what to do and set things up, and she had some responsibility. So she really liked that. So I said to her, just being playful, I leaned over and I said, well, maybe maybe uh, you could come and uh, be stage director for this thing. And then, and then she kind of shook her head at that, and then I decided to really hoke it up, you know. So I said, maybe we could take this thing on the road, and I could be the character that's like Steve Martin in Leap of Faith. I don't know if you saw that movie, but it's a movie about this unscrupulous uh, evangelist, you know, tent, tent revivalist. And I said, maybe I could be Steve Martin, the Steve Martin character, and we could take this on the road, and you could be my stage manager. And she thought about it just for a little second. She leaned over and said, you're not that convincing. <laughs> uh, well, anyway. <laughs> well, it's true, of course. But anyway, the reason I brought that up is because I did give the t talk last week, and what came to me, it was a talk about the Gospel of John, what came to me is that The Gospel of John, the evangelist talks a lot about light and dark. And we moderns hardly get it because for the simplest reason, we have electricity. It's you you think that's but think about it. In the ancient world when the sun went down it got dark and there was not a whole lot you could do about it. I mean you could light little candles, you could build a little fire, but they did very little. And when you went walking about, if there was no moon out, it was dark. And if there were, if there were uh, wicked things in the neighborhood, they were on you. Uh, so darkness was a different experience in, in social life in the ancient world. And so I was just saying, well, look, it's very simple. We don't get it, what this gospel is talking about. When it talks about light, light is something that was a blessing. You woke up in the morning and it got light and you breathed a sigh of relief. Uh, so, and that put me to thinking about other things that we don't get in the Gospels because we're not, we're not living in the kind of world that the people were who wrote them. Well, where that comes into play in today's material is with two concepts that are absolutely central to the Gospel, but concepts that because we're not in touch with how they played out in the first century or how they're, they're, the power they had in the first century, they are, they are not as uh, revelatory for us as they ought to be. And the two concepts are Father and Temple. And so this morning, and they both in some way, as I'll try to show, have to do with Abraham. And so I want to move from Abraham into the New Testament and see Jesus' mission in terms of father and temple. Now, mostly I'm interested in temple, but I want to begin with the, the question of father. And then next week, I want to come back to uh, the, the, uh, the crucifixion story as the story of the end of sacrifice not the immediate end, but the beginning of the end. Uh, so, on Mount Moriah, I remember Abraham went, uh, followed God's command and went to Mount Moriah. On Mount Moriah, Abraham performed the quintessentially biblical act. That's what I tried to say last week. He abandoned a primitive, crude, and murderous form of sacrifice in favor of a morally tolerable form and he did so in obedience to the God whom his contemporaries thought was still, at least periodically, demanding child sacrifice. 
So I said last week, that's the big biblical business. It's not, it's to move away from uh, uh, sacrifice and attenuated forms of it, to move away from human sacrifice uh, and attenuated forms of it, animal sacrifice being one of them, as quickly as we can. And it takes a long time, obviously. So I said we should all be children of Abraham, and that was my way of, uh, of, of saying, well, this is perhaps a, an ecumenical position that we could take, certainly with Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. We could say, well, to, in one degree or another, we're all children of Abraham. What does that mean? Why don't we talk it over and see if we can't take that calling to be children of Abraham and live up to it, to do in our time the version of what Abraham did on Mount Moriah. As Rene pointed out last week, the, in the New Testament, the paraclete is the Spirit of God which uh, comes into the world with Christ and is very much a part of the revelation of the cross and then begins to move through history arousing an empathy for the victims of sacrifice and scapegoating and deconstructing the, the myths that make such things morally tolerable. And we have biblical warrant for the fact that the work of the paraclete can never be finally stopped. That is to say, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Uh, it's, it cannot be called back. We will have to simply change the world according to how, uh, as, the, as the paraclete reveals its perversities to us. But it can, of course, be arrested, and that's the problem, is that's the problem, is wh when and where this spirit is arrested. It should come as no surprise, it doesn't come as no surprise, obviously, that Jesus lived and the Christ event took place at a historical moment when the process was arrested. Abraham, so let's look at Abraham. Abraham. Here's the two things I want to focus on about Abraham. He was called to leave his father's house and to journey to Mount Moriah and there to preside over a great anthropological leap forward from human sacrifice to the substitution of animal. In Second Chronicles, we have a passage in Second Chronicles which says that the temple at Jerusalem, the, the mountain, the temple mount, was Mount Moriah. So we have a biblical connection which essentially says the temple is the, uh, is the result of what Abraham did. It is here because what of what what Abraham did. Abraham chose to sacrifice the ram and the temple is what came of that choice. And I want to focus on that uh, in, in a few minutes. The second, now, and the temple was, was central to Jewish identity in the first century. It was this enormous imposing uh, structure, both physically and spiritually, and it's, it was the center of uh, Jewish self-identity and cultural identity. And the other center of that was Jewish descent, being sons of Abraham, children of Abraham. So Abraham is our, in the first century, Abraham was the father figure, the supreme father figure. I mean, there, Moses was the father figure too, and so on and so forth, but ancestrally, the, the great ancestor was Abraham. And the temple was the center of cultural life. And I'm, I'm invoking these because I want to show how what Jesus does is run headlong into both of those ideas and, and, and as a result perform the supreme Abrahamic act, which is to say move, moving away from sacrifice. So at the time of Jesus, the temple and the idea of father were the two preeminent cultural and social paradigms 
or organizing principles of Jewish social and cultural life. The influence of the temple's sacrificial cult and the patriarchal social structures was such that we would be, it would be appropriate to apply to them Paul's idea of the powers and principalities. That is to say, these were, these were ideas that were so powerful that people could not even think outside of them. I sometimes look for an idea in our world that is that powerful, and I don't think there are any that powerful. But those that, are, that have some of that power, two come to mind in our world, ideas that have that power. One is democracy, and the other is evolution. Most of us in the Western world simply don't know how to think outside of those two paradigms. Now, that's not, it's not as binding on us, I think, as, as the idea of father and temple were on the first century Jews. But nevertheless, by invoking those, I think we can get a feel for the kind of structure uh, that these things uh, presided over. Jesus came to see, and certainly the early church saw, that behind the veil of these two organizing motifs lay a hallowed and sacralized structure of righteousness, idolatry, raw power, and violence. And these two structures, Father, I'm putting Father here in quotations, Father and Temple, were, of course, intertwined. And I want to look at them both, but I want to, and I want to primarily look at Temple because that's the central drama in many of the gospel accounts is the drama between Jesus and the temple. Jesus becomes, Jesus replaces the temple in Christian understanding. So it's a direct confrontation. But also the Father. And last week I, I, I spoke as I have in the past many times because I think it's absolutely central of, of the passage in chapter 8 of John where Jesus talks about the Father and, and, if you will, deconstructs the idea of Father that is prevailing in his time. And he says, you don't know how to live in my word or my logos. You don't know how to take up residence or uh, abide in my logos, my word. His word is not just his, his words he's speaking, but something greater than that, the, the reality that the words uh, allude to. And he says, you don't know how to live in that reality because you're living someplace else. Well, the other place they were living was Temple Father. And he says, my, if you would step into my reality, my logos, you would be free. And they, as I said last week, you know, they, they say, well, wait, we're already free. We're children of, we're sons of Abraham. And so here you have the question. I'll go over it again. We've been over it many times, but it never hurts to go over it again because it's so essential. Jesus says, I know you have descended from Abraham. You see, this then raises the question of, is descent enough to qualify as a child of Abraham? We have here, by the way, some, the, the, the hint, I think, of what was later in the Christian tradition to become the communion of saints. What is our relationship to, our, to the tradition? Are we related because we are, we are related you know, genealogically, uh, what is the relationship? It's uh, it, it's a, it's it's not a descent, a a uh, genetic descent. Okay, some other way of being a child of Abraham. In any event, he says, "So you're descended from Abraham, but in spite of that, you want to kill me," which means you're not up to what Abraham did. Abraham transcended the sacrificial system that was pre prevailing in his day. And with this group of people ready to kill Jesus, it's clear that they are not prepared to transcend there. And he says, and then he connects all this to the question of Father. I, for my part, speak of what I have seen with my Father, but you, you put into action the lessons learned from your Father. So we have a contest in the New Testament between two fathers, Jesus's and the conventional one, the one that's ruling the, the paradigm that's ruling the Jewish thought. He says, you prefer to do what your father wants. 
He was a murderer from the beginning, a liar and the father of lies. So he does two things. He talks about God as his father, which is itself uh, unique and radical. Uh, people, Jewish people had talked about Yahweh as father in the past. But when Jesus talks about God as my father, he's talking about, he's saying, I have no other. He's deconstructing the existing sense of loyalties in his world because everybody else was adjusting their loyalties in terms of their, uh, uh, their ancestry, their religious, their religious tradition was ancestral, it was genealogical, and so on. So all, they had all these, this web of interconnected loyalties that had to do with the, with the patriarchal structure. And when Jesus says, God is my father, he was abandoning all of that. And so and some people think when you use that language, that means therefore you're, you're uh, invoking it. He was abandoning it. Nobody said more radical things about fatherhood than Jesus. Compared with what he said, today's anti-patriarchy bandwagon is a joke. So when Jesus says, my father is God, he's saying, uh, he's subordinating the whole system of loyalties in his world. The entire system of loyalty in his world was built up around fatherhood and one's, one's uh, descent and so on and one's genealogy. Now, it goes to go, uh, to go from the Gospels, from the, uh, John to the Synoptics, there's a very powerful version of this not as anthropologically revelatory, perhaps, as that passage in John 8, but still a pretty powerful thing, which catches the essence of it in Matthew 23, when Jesus says to his disciples, you must not allow yourselves to be called rabbi, since you have only one master and you are all brothers. You must call no one on earth your father, since you have only one Father and He is in heaven. Nor must you allow yourselves to be called teachers, for you have only one teacher, the Christ. Now this is unbelievably radical. Again, we don't get it for the same reason that we don't get the stuff about light and darkness. We don't live in a world where it's as powerful as it was. It was the defining thing. You know, in our world, you say, well, you know, what's your credit card number or, or what's, your, what's your address or what's your social security number uh, or, you know, what college did you go to and so on and so forth. None of that. In the ancient world, it was all who's your father and who's the, what tribe are you from and what's your ancestral... You see, it was all that and nothing more. So imagine, you know, it's like Jesus coming along saying, okay, now I'll take all of your addresses, all of your... All of your uh, uh, <laughs> credit cards, everything, and scrap them, you know, shred them. Uh, we're not going to go by that anymore. Well, that doesn't even begin to get at the power that this idea of fatherhood had in, in his world. 